the second pick, the Philadelphia Eagles select Donovan McNabb, quarterback, Syracuse University. Don't move. Hello again and welcome to another edition of the Boo Birds podcast. My name is Joe Greenwich. He's John Sager. We're back for another episode. John, how you doing? I'm doing great. Spent a weekend with uh, my parents on a birthday Zoom. They, oh, really? Their birthdays on, are on the 9th and 12th. So uh, we did a little, little nice get together on Sunday with uh, my sister and her family and you know, had a had a fun session, but uh, happy birthday to them. I will not name their ages. <laughs> happy birthday to Mr. and Mrs. Sager. We're actually recording here on the 12th. So whose birthday is today? That'll be my dad's birthday. Well, special double happy birthday to Mr. Sager. John, my weekend was was whatever. I've got some beef that I want to put on the grill right now. It's what's for dinner. It's, it, it, it's not even two hours old. This is about as fresh a beef as you can have. And it's with six ABC here in Philadelphia. I was going to say, was it with, it wasn't with Gary Batman because that is a, that is a beef that has been going on for years. (laughs) Now I have very few fixtures in my life. Okay. Especially over the last 13 months or so. We've talked about this before seven o'clock PM every weeknight, Monday through Friday. I watch jeopardy for 30 minutes. I just sit there and I watch it. I don't have to deal with work normally. I don't want to deal with anything else. I just want to watch my stories, so to speak. Last week and this week, Jeopardy being guest hosted by Aaron Rodgers. We'll talk about that in a second. Tonight, I turn on 6ABC at the very end of their evening news, and it's very glitchy, almost like, like if you were streaming something, like you were buffering. And cable television shouldn't buffer, John. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know what's going on. I don't know the technical side of it. But this continued for at least 35 minutes. I saw maybe seven of the questions on the show. I tried to record it on the DVR. Who knows how that's going to turn out? Because I basically went from watching this mess to logging on to record with you. But how does a television network not know what's going on with its own broadcast for 35 minutes. I want answers. If anyone from 6ABC or any other television network is listening and can explain to me how that can happen, the error's been fixed. You got to see at least most of Wheel of Fortune, the far inferior of the two syndicated game shows, that I would go on in a heartbeat of fast. Sorry, Pat and Vanna, but I would, but come on, let's be real here. But it's, it's really the only thing I have in my life, other than, you know, every week getting together with you, John, of course that is of any sort of comfort in these trying times. And it was ripped away from me. And, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm furious. Have you had a chance to watch Aaron Rodgers? Well, that leads into what I, I, what I was going to say next. Aaron Rodgers is the host. Just relax. Just relax. <laughs> have you had fun. a chance to see him? No, I have not. I think he's pretty good. I don't think he has the voice for it, but he sounded a lot better at the end of last week than he did at the start. I've noticed all the guest hosts the first couple days are a little shaky because Jeopardy tapes five episodes in one day. So you get there and your first couple episodes and and your last couple episodes are, are for the day are taped maybe a couple hours apart. 
and you can see them get better as the recording day or the airing week goes on. He has said that he would welcome the opportunity to be the full-time host of Jeopardy and thinks he could do it without having to retire from the NFL. Honestly, I don't know how I'd feel about him taking over because like I said, the sound isn't quite there for me. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. He just isn't it. But I think he's done a great job and he very clearly has prepared for it. So it'd actually be kind of cool if he got the gig. But 6ABC, tomorrow night, you better have your act together or someone's going to get a really strongly worded tweet. Jim Gardner, you're welcome to come on the pod at any time. <sighs> John, I'm angry. Why don't you read the news? A busy week in the NL East. The Sunday night baseball broadcast continued to be disappointing. Offensive shots at Phillies fans and shoddy production martyr broadcast that will be remembered for a controversial replay ruling after Alec Bohm was determined to be safe or most likely not out. More on that later. Man, I didn't realize we were going to take shots at two different networks in the same corporate family right out of the gate here tonight, John. Oh, no, no, no. This will be discussed. (laughs) Speaking of controversy, we had a first last week. I felt sorry for the Marlins. They absolutely got screwed by the umpires after Michael Conforto moved into a pitch with the bases loaded. On the plus side, it's another reason to dislike the Mets. Baseball is apparently getting weirder. Multiple suspicious baseballs thrown by Trevor Bauer and a start were sent to MLB for investigation. Kudos to Bauer, however, for not throwing this lot into center field. Joe Musgrove tossed a no-hitter, the first in Padres history, also means that every team in baseball now has at least one no-no. From the diamond to the hardwood, A-Rod and billionaire Mark Lohr are buying the Minnesota Timberwolves. The duo are committed to keeping the Timberwolves in Minnesota, allegedly. Really, they can't do worse. They purchased the team from Glenn Taylor. Under Taylor, Minnesota has made the playoffs just once in 26 years. I have a hot take on that. I know they've agreed to keep the team in Minnesota. I think they'll be in Seattle by 2023. That's my hot take prediction. So you're predicting that Alex Rodriguez comes back to Seattle? That's what I'm saying. From the far corners of the wide world of sports, an 18-year-old bowler known as the Ginger Assassin, why say the real name with a nickname like that, recorded a rare 7-10 split. It is only the fourth time in PBA history that someone has achieved this feat in a televised tournament. I think I've only seen it once or twice, and to be honest, I don't think I saw it either time. I think I heard the screams in celebrations. Guys celebrate a 7-10, I think, more than they would a 300 game, to be honest with you. Now, question, as a bowler, is your nickname the Delco Assassin, or is that something reserved to the Irishman plot? No, I think my nickname is, ugh, I can't believe he missed that spare. And finally, the 2021 Masters wrapped with another first. Hideki Matsuyama won the tournament. He is the first ever Japanese man to win at Augusta. And that's the news. Speaking of first, hey Joe, what are we drinking tonight? Well, I so thoroughly enjoyed doing a taste test last week that I thought, Why don't I do it again? I went to my local beverage shop and I went into the mix and match fridge and I bought five or six random different drinks and I'm going to be taste testing them over the next five or six weeks, assuming I don't forget and drink one early. Tonight I have a Bold Rock Hard Lemonade 
And right below hard lemonade, it says real flavor of lemonade. So that's real encouraging. I thought last week we did lemon tea. Let's shift to lemonade this week. So I'm going to crack this one open. But while I'm doing that, John, what are you drinking tonight? Well, I'm just drinking water because I'm getting my first vaccine shot tomorrow. So I don't want to mess around with that too much. Now, normally I'd give you a hard time, but that's a pretty good reason. I'd hate to have to do an in-memoriam segment for you next week. It's like, what happened to John? His, his shot interacted with his what-are-you-drinking beverage and how he's no longer with us. That that would be an interesting episode, that's for sure. Do you need that to be a live episode? Do, is, is that what we're going here? Do, <laughs> do you have another partner in mind? <laughs> I think everyone has a short list, right? Isn't that true? I know you've got one. Hey, Joe. What are you drinking? <laughs> well... Here Drink we go. It. We got Bold Rock Hard Lemonade. Let's see. Chuck it. Well, first we got to smell. We, we got to do the proper taste test, John. The smell is more lemonade smell than last week's was lemon tea smell. So let's see. Beyonce, drink it. It doesn't taste like lemonade. I don't even know what it tastes like. It does have a lemon zest. Yeah, I could, I could see this as hard lemonade. Yeah. All right, that's not bad. Hold on. Yeah, good job, Bold Rock. That is uh, that's quite the refreshing beverage. One thumb up. The other thumb is holding the bottle. I don't want to spill everything. And that was What Are You Drinking? Apparently brought to you this week by Bold Rock Hard Lemonade because I can't imagine they've had their name mentioned that many times in a row in that short a span of time on any media anywhere. John, probably the biggest news in Philly sports over the last week. You mentioned the Phillies maybe getting away with one in Atlanta and the Flyers trade deadline this afternoon. Let's talk about the Phillies first. Uh, I said maybe getting away with one. I was being kind. They absolutely got away with one. I don't think Alec Bohm touched home plate. If you missed it last night, top of the ninth inning, game tied 6-6. Didi Gregorius hits a pop-up to... I mean, what can only be called shallow left field. And Dusty Wathan decides to test Marcelo Zuna's arm, and he sends Alec Bohm. And the throw is wide. The catcher comes back to try to tag Bohm, who slides in just ahead of the tag. He pirouettes as he gets up. The umpire calls him safe. Upon further review, it looked like Bohm went over the plate but didn't touch it. But it probably wasn't conclusive enough to overturn the call that was made. The Braves were incensed. Their fans were throwing things on the field. Nobody talked about that quite like they, if someone from Philadelphia had dropped a hot dog wrapper in that instance, we would have been hearing about Santa Claus and snowballs and batteries for the next three days. Instead, it was implied just- in the broadcast. It was, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to cut you off here because that's exactly the source <laughs> of my anger. Yeah. I was sitting here last night, and maybe it was because the call went in favor of my team. I try not to get too worked up about officiating calls. I think over the course of a season, it goes 50-50. You win some, you lose some. And honestly, it, it, it's, it is a bad look for Major League Baseball that they had two really bad replay things this week. We'll get into that later. But Sunday Night Baseball, that whole broadcast last night was awful. And I think a large part of it has to do with doing a national broadcast. You're probably not using your regular crew because of COVID and you're doing it remotely. It was awful. 
absolutely awful. And and I'm I'm gonna try to keep this clean, but I have a lot of <laughs> thoughts for Matt Vaskersian because oh when boy. he when he made that little that little jab at Philadelphia where it's you know like the Phillies are gonna feel right at home. Honestly, I felt really of- offended by that because it's one of those things where it's like, okay, fine, you know, we have a reputation, but that's unnecessary. The the Braves fans are literally throwing stuff on the field. I thought I I didn't read anything about this afterwards. I thought Joe Girardi was telling his team to get off the field after the game because he thought something might happen. It seemed like they didn't really do a lot of high fives on the field. They got off pretty quickly. So they're throwing stuff on the field. They had to be censored on live television. You you could hear the audio, you know, mute from time to time. And this is going on while they're doing their tomahawk chop thing, which isn't even it's not only problematic, it's also unoriginal. So, you know, they they have that going on. And then it's we're not going to talk about how Atlanta fans are misbehaving. We're going to. Talk about Philadelphia fans, Santa Claus, like all, all the stuff. And you know, the, I was at the J.D. Drew Battery game. I'm aware that stuff finds its way onto the field. but <laughs> Finds its way onto the field. <laughs> <laughs> Someone just so happened to lose the cap from their flashlight and the D-cell batteries just fell from the 600 level onto the field. <laughs> That has got to be the most Homer biased way I've ever heard anyone describe anything. <laughs> like, like you do, like it happens. But it was just such an unnecessary thing. And like, I think that, again, like not it's not just this year with with ESPN. Their flagship broadcasts are Monday Night Football, Sunday Night Baseball. They used to be something to look forward to. Monday Night Football was appointment television because, you know, it was the, it was the game of the week. They had good matchups. They had good commentary. Now we just have clown graphics and then whatever's going on in the booth. And this year, like Sunday Night Baseball has regressed steadily for about five or six years. And it's just unlistenable. Like, and I, I try not to make too much commentary on national broadcasters. I can't do that job. It's it's a hard job to do it, especially to do it well. But you know, he's not that good of a broadcaster. Like every time he he has this weird thing where when something happens, he shouts. He doesn't just get excited, but it's almost like I have to turn my TV down. And I'm really annoyed at that. Because it happens all the time. And sometimes it's not even on stuff that's that worth getting worked up about. And it's just, I'm, I'm tired of it. I'm tired of Sunday Night Baseball. I used to love John Miller and Joe Morgan on Sunday nights. It was a nice, relaxing event to look forward to. And now I only really watch it if the Phillies are on. And generally, I I like listening to our local broadcasts. I think we are very lucky to have you know, great broadcasters and a great, you know, great production crew in our area. So, you know, we're, we're very fortunate for that. But I've really gotten, I don't know if it's me getting older, I've really starting to just get tired of when the Philly teams are on national TV because I feel like this happens all the time. It's just not connected to the to the game as, as much. And then like last night, like 
it's a very exciting game. And then we're just taking this unnecessary shot. Like there was no reason for that. So Matt Vasgersian, we're suddenly aware of you probably in ways that we wouldn't have been before. Like I was able to ignore it before, but, but now you're on my list. You're definitely on a list and I look forward to mentioning this later on. Before we started recording tonight, the Sixers were playing right now and I was flipping through the channels and I was like, ooh, is it a national game or is the local broadcast on too? And we saw that it was on. So I think we both have the local broadcast on right now, even though it's muted, it makes no difference. We both have the local one on as we would prefer that to the national one. I understand what you're saying as someone who has broadcast many baseball games to varying numbers of dozens of people at any given time. I will refrain from dozens upon dozens. (laughs) I will refrain from commenting upon the play by play aspect. Everybody is taking shots at Alex Rodriguez. And it's a shame to me because when he first started broadcasting and doing the studio stuff, like during the playoffs for Fox and for ESPN, People were stunned at how insightful and and good he was at that. But then they put him in a booth and that all seems to go away. And they had Jessica Mendoza in there for a little while and she did a good job. The problem I have with her and Alex Rodriguez being in the booth is that they have contracts with major league teams, right? So like she works with the Mets and he works with the Yankees. I, I don't know what role specifically, I don't remember, but there should not be an employee of a team on a broad national broadcast for that team. Like, I, I don't think that's right. Right. And in Jessica Mendoza's case, it's particularly odd because it's not like she has a pre-existing relationship as a former player, as will happen with that. And I realize that might be unfair, but a lot of times you'll see, you know, former players have a, you know, professional relationship with. Right. You know, and that's how Alex Rodriguez like, has a deal with. The Yankees, right? Right. It's sort of like in the way um, Charlie Manuel, for example, or Larry Boa, they're not working on an on-field capacity, but they'll they'll do some light instruction and they'll do some community appearances, Mickey Morandini too, and you know they'll, they'll do that. But they they played here, so it makes right. sense. So it, I to me, it was it was very odd that she signed that deal, and I think as far as journalistic credibility, credibility. It, it doesn't mesh with, it, it, for some reason, it doesn't sit with me. Maybe also because it's the Mets. That right. also might play I, into it that, too. That is openly one of the reasons that I was annoyed by it because they're both New York teams, of course. Like, of course, they're going to get that. Um, Dan Shulman was a longtime ESPN Sunday Night Baseball guy. He does broadcasting for the Blue Jays. He's really, really good. So it's not really an issue. Also because how often were the Jays on Sunday Night Baseball, right? But the Yankees are on all the time. So is Alex Rodriguez going to be broadcasting Yankees games? God, I hope not. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's become insufferable enough as it is. But I obviously not nearly as angry about it as you are. But I will say that if we can get back to how we started this conversation, I'm going to put you on the spot. Was Alec Bohm safe or was he out? He was absolutely out. I never thought he was safe. <laughs> just even live looking at it, I thought, oh, he's. it didn't look like his, his foot touched the plate. And I actually wasn't excited about the, the, the play until they they actually ruled him to be safe. Right. Or, again, not out. 
<laughs> and yeah, I think I think obviously in that situation, whatever call was made on the field was going to stand because they're going to call it inconclusive. But I, I, I'm not a proponent of robot umpires, but there's got to be a way to know if someone touched the plate. And maybe maybe we should change the rule so that going over the plate counts, just like going over the plane of the goal line. It might be safer if guys aren't trying to reach a finger out to touch the plate when a guy's coming down with a glove and you know break a hand or an ankle or something. I don't know. Maybe it's safer if you don't have to touch the plate and you can just go over it. But until then, the rule is you got to touch it, and I don't think he touched it. I think the, the frustrating thing for me is for the most part, when a referee or an umpire misses a call on the field, it happens. No one's perfect. There's human error involved. And on a close play like that, I probably wouldn't get it right, let alone someone who's been professionally trained. And unless you're Angel Hernandez, good at your job. <laughs> but I, th- I think the frustrating thing for Braves fans, Marlins fans, and just sports fans overall is we're sitting here at home. We have inferior angles, most likely, to whatever they're seeing at, you know, in whatever league replay center there is. And we're all going, oh, he's out. And apparently, in Chris Collinsworth fashion, Matt Vasgersian thought that Alec Bohm was safe. He he, and whoever made the decision at the you know the replay center were the only people who thought that. And it's just one of those the frustrating things. It then goes, like, what's the point of replay if ultimately you can't get the call right? Why? What's the point at that at that point? Just just take it out. And whether it's being afraid to overrule one of your you know friends who's an umpire, or just being afraid to you know, make kind of a bold call. I did hear, and I know we'll talk about Michael Conforto a little bit later on. Uh, Buster only made a good point last week where he talked about uh, rule 801C, which is basically the rule that the field is the umpire's domain. (laughs) So that if something unusual happens or unprecedented, they have the authority to change it. Kind of like, you know, the Conforto leaning into the pitch. Again, we'll get into that later. And... You kind of wonder if that might be the best way to go in a situation like that. But overall, this this needs to be fixed, and this needs to be fixed before it really kills the team in the playoffs. I think the whole replay system, the way it's it's conducted with with challenges, and then oh, this isn't a challenge, this is a a review. Every play, if you're going to have replay, should be eligible for review and should be reviewed in real time. I, I've said this ever since they started. It would be so easy to have another umpire in the building, either in the press box or in the umpire's room, watching the game on television. They don't even need a special feed because they're using television cameras for replay. They don't even need anything special. Just watch the game on television. When the play is close, watch the replay. Maybe he has a replay operator or he knows how to use some sort of little board or something. I don't know. And then he buzzes the crew chief and says, hey, 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 that's not right. Hold up a second reviews it, boom, like you said, you get the call right, end of story. That's similar to what college football has uh, in in certain conferences to where there's an on-field guy when there's a turnover or scoring play where they'll just kind of go onto the field, the replay official is, you know, reviewing it, and then, you know, they 
stand on the field and, you know, until they signal that everything's okay, they don't, you know, play stopped. That seems like it's, it's the way to do it without dragging it out unnecessarily, worrying about challenges. And maybe no one has to worry about getting their feelings hurt about, you know, your call was wrong. Then again, college football referees continue to get calls wrong, even with reviews. So maybe that's not the best example to follow, but I hear you. And it just would be such an easy way to do it. And of course, that's probably why they don't. Anything else on the Phillies? They're six and three. I think winning that game Sunday night versus losing it changes a lot kind of with the perception. Like they kind of stem the bleeding from a couple of tough losses to the Braves. But four game series with the Mets by the time this episode drops, they'll be halfway through it. A doubleheader on Tuesday, followed by games Wednesday and Thursday. I think if they go up to New York and can get a split, you're looking at eight and five. They're probably still in first place. Then I think, okay, maybe we've got something and opening weekend wasn't an aberration. Agreed. I think it's a good good start. I try not to get too worked up uh, in the first couple of weeks of a season because a lot of times, you know, we're dealing with, again, 162 games versus, you know, football where, you know, two or three weeks really does matter. But in baseball, two or three weeks might matter. There's just so much more of a sample size before you can really... There are literally 153 games left on the schedule. Right. I I think Jeff McNeil for the Mets is batting 099 or or something like that right now. I'm pretty sure he's not going to bat 099 by the end of the season. And if he is, my fantasy team's in trouble. So, (laughs) you know, story for another podcast. All right. Well, we we promised some Flyers talk. and, And John, we've been trying to get the Flyers into the show. When we first started, they were in that modified 2020 playoffs. We had stuff to talk about. The only thing we've had to talk about with them lately has been despair and humiliation. So we've avoided it. I mean, they lost 9 nothing in a game. Nine and then nothing. they lost 8-3 to three in the next game against the same team. How do you lose 17-3 to three in hockey over the course of two games? That's, that's unfathomable to me. Like the fact that everybody wasn't fired slash cut and like the minor league team literally just entirely called up in their place is beyond me. But there's been more of that than good things to talk about. So we've tried to stay away because why talk about that when you've got the Sixers atop the Eastern Conference, optimism abounding with the Phillies. And then, of course, I won't say his name, the saga about the quarterback and the football team. Nate Sudfeld, the Nate Sudfeld controversy (laughs) has been just roaring. Nate Sudfeld, who I believe just signed with the San Francisco 49ers. He did. He did. News, news addendum. Yeah. (laughs) But why, why bring yourself down? The Flyers have fallen so far off the radar in town, I think, with, you know, the Philly season starting, the Eagles just constantly being a circus 24 7, 365 and a quarter, the Sixers being really good you know, with a new coach and, again, topping the Eastern Conference. But the NHL trade deadline was today. The Flyers came in just four points behind Boston for the last playoff spot. Boston has two games in hand, so that lead could be anywhere from four to eight in reality. So at the deadline, the Flyers put the emphasis on dead. They've run up the white flag. They traded away Michael Raffle and Eric Gustafsson. Gustafsson, they signed before this season, an offensive defenseman. Raffle, I knew had been with the Flyers for a long time, 
Apparently he's been here eight years. And according to an article I read today by Sam Crocitti in the Inquirer, he played in 504 games as a flyer. That's more games than, wait for this list, Paul Holmgren, Ron Hextall, Eric Lindros, and Bernie Perrant. Michael Roffel played in more games with the Flyers than those guys. Now, Eric Lindros was here for a while, but I feel like he never played more than 50 or 60 games in a season with all of his injury problems. But I had no idea that he was here that long, that he had played that many games. The Flyers received a fifth round and a seventh round pick in the 2021 and 2022 NHL drafts for these two players. That's not exactly the kind of deal that you're looking to make when you need to remake your franchise, nor is it the kind of deal you make when you're going for it. So that's why I classified this trade deadline as more dead than line for the Flyers. But it's a shame. Philadelphia is such a a good hockey town. The, the, The team never wants for money, and yet they can just never get over the hump. It's been now, it's going to be 46 years since they won the Stanley Cup. And they can't get a franchise goaltender to save their lives. They thought they had one in Carter Hart. He's fallen off a cliff this year. And some people say, you know, he's a young goalie. He'll come through it. How do we know? You know, talk about small sample size, right? How do we know? It's an inexplicable thing to me how of all the teams in town, that one is where it is. Honestly, when you're when you were talking about some of those names, specifically Lindros, you know, it's it's very hard for me to analyze where I am as a hockey fan right now because they are the team in Philadelphia that I watch the absolute least of, or at least have of the last decade. But I used to really love watching hockey. I don't know if I've ever fully paid attention ever since Patrick Kane had that mystery goal back in 2010, (laughs) which might be the single most heartbreaking loss or moment of, you know, my career, whatever the word you might choose as a Philadelphia (laughs) sports fan. But it, it perhaps because of the way of everyone's happy and you have no idea why on the ice because you never saw the, the puck go in the net. And I, I don't know if my fandom ever fully recovered, partially because they've been completely irrelevant since that moment. The only way they've been relevant since then is with Gritty. And I am so over Gritty. Well, there's a hot take. He's funny. I laugh at a lot of the videos. There aren't too many mascots in the world who can reject a nun in a pickup basketball game. And you think that's great. Honestly, they have spent so much money and effort with Gritty promoting him. And it's just tiring. At some point, you need good young players on the ice and you need to win freaking games. I'm tired of this. Just, I haven't, whenever I try to watch them, it's, it's, it's not even like the Godfather where you, you know, you're thinking, oh, I get, get pulled back in. It's like, I don't even want to follow this anymore. Like, I don't, like, I loved going to games. Like, one of my favorite memories is going, you know, going to 
you know, the Calder Cup finals and that strike year and being very low in the first bowl, you know, for, you know, a sold out hockey game that, you know, meant something to a lot of people, then I I love doing it. And there's, there's no reason to do this. This isn't even like the process era Sixers where you're like, okay, well, maybe eventually they'll get great. I get this. The Flyers, do they have a plan? Because honestly, they had a plan with Ron Hextall. They don't have a plan right now. It's a corporate-led franchise that has zero accountability, except for whoever's posting the gritty videos. Maybe they should be doing the drafting now because (laughs) they're doing a phenomenal job. We've learned from the team across the street that when the mascot is the best thing about your team, things aren't going well, right? Just ask any Phillies fan from 2012 through maybe, maybe literally today. I don't know. But you mentioned the Calder Cup, and I have the same kind of memory just the first time the Phantoms won the Calder Cup. My dad and I had a season ticket plan the first year of Phantoms hockey, and we had a game plan where we saw every team that came into town one time. So I got to know who players were who were just about to jump into the NHL all across the league. And to see those guys in the NHL over the next five, ten years after that really kept my interest. And we were there when they won the Calder Cup in 1998. I was there for the heartbreak of losing to the Hershey Bears in 1997, which, by the way, will also come up later. But when the sport went away, from the lockout, so did I. Like, I just never recovered. And I've tried. I've really tried. And it would help if the team seemed like they were going anywhere. They don't. They really don't. They remind me of what I thought of the Sixers back in August, right? The Sixers really turned it around real quick with a, a big name coach and an even bigger name executive. But I don't know that that can happen with the Flyers. I, like you, you said, you you hit it dead on. I don't know what the plan is. You know, maybe the deals weren't out there today to, to get a young talent or a better draft pick. You're not getting an NHL player with a seventh round draft pick in 2022. I'm going to go on the record and say that. Whoever the Flyers take with that pick is not getting his number raised to the rafters at the Wells Fargo Center or whatever bank it's named after 20 years from now. I mean... Honestly, maybe they just didn't have the players that someone was willing to give them a good draft pick for, which given how they performed this year, I think that's more likely than not. (laughs) Well, ultimately, neither one of us thinks either of these deals did anything to move the needle. But the reality is, for the most part, we're not really big hockey knowers. True. Actually, right now, I'm more qualified to talk about the Union because I've watched more of their games in the last year or so than I have the Flyers. John, did did you just mention the union? Yeah. Wait, no, no. That's right. It's time for another soccer minute right here on the Boo Birds podcast. John, do you have your stopwatch ready? As ready as I want it to be. (laughs) All right, here we go. Ready? CONCACAF is the confederation that governs soccer in North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. It's known for things being a little weird, a little BS, and a lot corrupt. Case in point, nowhere else in the world do teams play World Cup qualifiers on bumpy pitches with bags of urine being launched at them. Don't hold me to that. 
but it does happen. Anyway, the Union played their first ever match in the CONCACAF Champions League last week in Costa Rica against a team called Deportivo Saprissa, and they won the game 1-0, but at the end, some joker named Ricardo Blanco, he went into this horror tackle on Kai Wagner, and he set off a near brawl on the pitch. The consequence, a yellow card. Not a deserved red card, not an equally deserved trip to a courtroom, but a yellow card. That is CONCACAF for you. Now, this isn't the European Champions League, you know, the one that has its own hymn and, you know, the one people actually care about. But still, it's a big deal if you're an MLS club and it's a big win for the club. But all anyone can talk about is the assault and the contratemps afterward. So screw you, Ricardo Blanco. Screw you, Deportivo Saprissa. And screw you, CONCACAF referees. The second leg is Wednesday night this week. Go Union. And there is this week's Soccer Minute. Well, that was a minute and three seconds. That means I get another 10 minutes to talk about Sunday night baseball. Actually, John, we were talking about soccer, so the concept of a minute is kind of nebulous. Let's just say I went into a little bit of stoppage time. With that, let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little bit about the Masters, and then we keep teasing the whole Michael Conforto thing. We're going to talk about that and some other weird finishes to games when we come back right here on the Boo Birds Podcast. Stick around. here on the Boo Birds podcast brought to you this week again by me drinking a bottle of Bold Rock Hard Lemonade. Almost done with it, John. So if I'm going to feel any effects, we're about to get weird. I think that might happen to me later this week with the first shot of the vaccine. Stop bragging. All right. Lucky you. All right. Fine. Whatever. You have natural antibodies. (laughs) You you got it the hard way. Anyway, when I think of lemonade, the next thing I think of is golf. And that's not true, but I needed a segue. The Masters was this weekend, as you mentioned in the news, won by Hideki Matsuyama, the first Japanese man to win a major tournament, not just to win the Masters. Honestly, the only reason we're talking about it is because I promised last week that we would. It wasn't a very thrilling tournament to me. Now, I say that with a caveat that most people won't find a golf tournament thrilling. But I think it was kind of more defined... Obviously, you know, Matsuyama making the history that he did you know, for, for his homeland, not just for himself, is a good thing. And, and that's a good story. But golf-wise, he took a big lead after the third round of four shots, which is a pretty big lead. And his lead got bigger, and then it started to, to shrink. And we thought we had something until Xander Shoffley made a triple bogey on the 16th hole and basically erased the drama. We had a young golfer, Will Zalatoris, finished second in his first ever trip to the Masters. But it just wasn't all that exciting to me. And I will admit that I didn't get to see as much of it as I would have liked. But what I was watching, I didn't really feel the drama. You know, 2019, obviously, Tiger Woods, you know, was he going to win it? Was he back? In the past, you've had, you know, Jordan Spieth running away with the tournament at, I believe, age 21 back in 2015. And then the next year, he was all set to win again until he imploded on a couple holes. And Danny Willett won the Masters. Well, what has Danny Willett done since, right? So 
there are years where it's it's an exciting tournament. It's the first major championship of the year. If you're a golf fan, you're always up for it. There's a guy in my bowling league who was in a thrift store one time, and he found a $5 blazer that was green. So he bought it, and he wears it one day a year to bowling, the Thursday of the Masters. I mean, how could you not? How could you not buy that? Of course. He isn't bowling this year. So when we had the Masters in November and we had the Masters this weekend, I didn't get to see Eddie in his green jacket. Kind of disappointed. I got to wait a whole other year. But, and maybe that plays a role in it. Maybe that really gets me excited. I don't know. But fr- from, a, from a viewer standpoint, I just didn't quite feel like it was a great tournament. Now, feel free to disagree with me. Tweet at me. Tell me I don't know what I'm talking about. I can think of a couple people who might do that off the top of my head, but I don't know. John, did you get a chance to see any of it? I know you're not a big golf guy. I didn't. And as you were talking, I was thinking of the the comment you made about golf being or not being thrilling. And that's probably by and large true. I don't think everyone is necessarily camped out in front of their their TV all weekend for, you know, it's every an acquired P- taste for sure. For every PGA event. I do think it probably has the best coverage of any sport because just by its nature, everyone is playing at the same, you know, in the same place at the same time. So you do get a unique look at the sport that you wouldn't necessarily have in, you know, unless it's an all-star game, but this, you know, it counts. But when I think of thrills and golf, they're almost exclusively at Augusta. Just there's a magic to the course that does not exist in any other golf course. And, you know, I'll always think back to, you know, probably the, the cliched golf memory that everybody has is that long putt that Tiger Woods had years ago when it just kept going and going and the ground kept shaking and it just trickled in. In your life, that call. Yeah. Right. And it, it was just one of those moments that you cannot forget as a sports fan. And I remember watching that with my family and you know, I, I have watched the Masters in, in past years. I was too busy on Saturday to watch it. And, you know, Sunday, you know, maybe the rainy weather here wasn't exactly golf weather for me. I will say my brother-in-law a few years ago was able to go down to Augusta and he had he and his friends had the time of their lives. Just want to correct you real quick. The, the shot you're talking about wasn't a putt. It was a chip shot. But as a non-golf person, I'm, I'm still going to give you credit for it. I think that what you're talking about. Like when you said that, I was like, well, no, there's all sorts of great things and, and exciting things that have happened. But, but I thought about it and it's like, I can remember Tiger Woods here. He, here he is again, right? Winning the 2008 U S open on a busted leg. That U S open happened at Torrey Pines, right? Which right. is a very well-known course, but you don't think, Oh, Tiger at Torrey Pines. You think, Oh, Tiger on a bum leg. Because the other tournaments moved to various different courses, many legendary courses in that rotation for all these tournaments. We had the U.S. Open at Marion in 2013, but the Masters is always at Augusta. So everything that happens there, it's the same, it's the same scene, right? So the 18th hole of the Masters every year is the same every year. You know, something happens on the 16th hole, in 2021, in 2008, in 2005, when Tiger Woods had that chip. It's the same scenery. It's like playing, you know, 
World Series games at Yankee Stadium or Fenway Park. You know, Carlton Fisk's home run in 1975. Fenway Park. Like, that's part of it, you know? Wrigley Field in baseball. You don't really get it as much with football stadiums, maybe like Lambeau Field. But for golf, the Masters is in the same place every year. Augusta and the Masters are synonymous with each other. So I I definitely see what you mean there, and I can understand how that would be the way that you would see it. And thinking about it, you know, I totally get it. I 100% agree with you. Probably the other event that's like that is Wimbledon, mm-hmm. where you have the the grass court. You know, all four tennis majors are played in the same stadium, but Wimbledon has that special thing that the other events don't quite have. Yeah, the French Open always played on clay. Doesn't quite seem to have that appeal as the grass courts at the All England Lawn and Tennis Club. Right. Maybe it's the royalty involved. Who who knows? (laughs) But there's just, there's an intangible to that event that doesn't exist everywhere. So that concludes our discussion of the Masters. Uh, Tune in about a month from now after the PGA Championship, where I will surely shoehorn in a couple minutes on golf on that week's episode. So now that we've spent this time talking about the most pristine golf and tennis facilities in the world. Let's go to Queens. (laughs) Which is the home of one of those tennis facilities you just talked about. Yeah, I don't think that's what we're going to be talking about. (laughs) John, you've teased it enough. Michael Conforto, for those of you who don't know, Michael Conforto is up at the plate. Bases loaded, bottom of the ninth in a tie ball game. He's got two strikes on him. Pitch comes in. The umpire starts to call strike three. Stops. Points at Conforto, says he was hit by the pitch. He gets first base. The ball game is over. The Marlins go crazy. Like, wait a minute. The rule says that a batter gets first base when he's hit by a pitch, unless it's a strike. They look at a replay, and the clip I saw, you know, we hate on the Mets a lot, but the clip I saw came from their broadcast, and all the credit in the world to their broadcasters, they called it like it happened. You can see Michael Conforto lean his elbow out into the strike zone. I'm still not convinced the pitch actually hit him. I didn't see it really change direction all that much. I'm not convinced it hit him. It may have hit him the same way Alec Bohm hit home plate, hashtag callback. But he very clearly reaches out his elbow. You don't do that. If you lean into a pitch, you don't get credit for hit by pitch. If you are hit by a pitch that is judged to be a strike, you don't get first base. Instead, the umpires give him first base. The Mets win the ball game. They go to a review. The only thing the review can check is whether or not the pitch hit him. Again, I don't think it did. At least I was watching the, the replay on a cell phone. I don't think it hit him. But if they had judged that it either hit him or that they don't have evidence to say that it didn't, they can't change the call by rule because did he lean into the pitch? is not reviewable. The Mets broadcaster is talking about how very clearly he leaned into the pitch, that it should be a strike. The umpire started to call it a strike. Instead of correcting the call, they could have always lied and said, oh yeah, on review, it didn't hit him after all. Instead, the Mets won the game. The Marlins incensed, as all baseball fans should be incensed, if you ask me. John, I'm going to guess that you also were incensed 
is that dirty or is it just part of the game? It could be both. I think as always, it depends on what team are you rooting for in this instance, <laughs> because let's be honest, the most beloved Philadelphia Philly potentially ever, Chase Utley would have done that exact same thing. No, he wouldn't have. No, absolutely you, not. You, you don't think? No, don't, he, he didn't have to because other teams would, would try to hit him. So he wouldn't have to lean into it. I don't think for a second that he would reach out over home plate to get hit by a pitch. I think he would have just slapped the ball right back up the middle and won it the legitimate way. Although I guess I just proved your point. If it was in City Field, he would have just hit it into uh, into right field there. You know, <laughs> just got that little that little corner of the stadium for him. I think it's kind of like flopping, to where it depends on sort of how you do it and how often you do it, and if the guy plays for your team. Because sometimes with flopping, it's the smart thing to do. You try to draw the foul. Marcus Smart, on the other hand, he might overdo it. Actually, sorry, he overdoes it. I don't really have a problem with Conforto doing it as much as I have a problem with the officiating deciding the outcome of the game like that and the fact that it was, one, completely non-reviewable. It's non-reviewable in terms of him leaning out and, you know, the uh, you know I guess they're trying to judge intent but I think that's that's a flaw of the replay system, not unlike Alec Bohm, granted different circumstances. But I don't really have a problem with the player doing that as much as the general outcome and how, you know, replay wasn't able to corral, you know, that chaos. You know, maybe it's the difference in terms of gamesmanship versus, versus cheating. I think it was more gamesmanship. I, I could judge by your reaction that I think you disagree a little bit. I think I was more incensed by the the way the Mets were celebrating it, you know? The comparison you made, like, I understand why you're making that comparison, but that would be like drawing an offensive foul that gave your team the win somehow. You know, I don't I don't know how how that would really relate. Maybe it's maybe it's like putting stickum on your gloves for the last play of a game and catching the winning touchdown with it. I don't know. But he very clearly leaned into it, put his arm over the strike zone. There's really no question of his intent to me. And I just think that Michael Conforto should probably wear a flak jacket the next time he goes to Miami because he should probably get the Astros treatment. You know, he wants to get hit by a pitch. There are a lot of guys out there who will show him what it's like to get hit by a pitch. I wouldn't be surprised if Michael Conforto goes down on the injured list with a broken hand or or busted toe getting drilled by a pitcher at some point this season. We don't condone such things on the Boo Birds podcast. We merely predict that they will happen. Well, this is the team that had Jose Urania on the roster a couple of years ago and let things get out of hand. So I think it's very possible that the Marlins might have to talk about, do we really want to do this? Because, you know, the league office is very aware of, you know, that team and headhunting. So We'll see what happens. That's a long baseball season, but hey, it's it's April and, you know. <laughs> 153 the, more games to go. The baseball is boring crowd. Eh, maybe they should have been watching this week. So that the crazy ending of that game kind of got me thinking. And I do want to say that we actually thought of this segment before the Alec Bohm play from last night. So <laughs> this this was planned. And then it just seemed especially relevant now. But we were thinking of, 
like weird endings of games. Joe, is there one event that sticks out in your mind? You know, you've been at countless sporting events where you recognize just a bizarre ending of a game. Well, I'm going to take your approach and you asked if there's one and I'll give you three. I only have one, so that works. <laughs> one, it wasn't the ending of the game that was the catalyst for it, but it was kind of surreal. I mentioned the 1997 Calder Cup playoffs a little while ago. Game one of the, the second round, the, the Phantoms lost to the Hershey Bears, who had been the Flyers affiliate up until that season. They lost that game at the Spectrum. Game two, Phantoms took the lead early and things got chippy. During that game, there was a full-on six-on-six brawl that included the goaltenders. The Hershey Bears starting goaltender, Jean-Francois LeBay, he played for the Avalanche and for the Rangers for a while. You may remember him. He got pulled from the game because he was bad. Their backup goaltender... When all this fighting's going on, skates out to center ice and he challenges Neil Little to join into a fight. Neil Little puts down his stick. He holds up a finger like just a second because he was having a little trouble untying his glove. Skates out to center ice to fight it's the, the sport other of gentleman. <laughs> his gentleman's gentleman's brawl. With one punch, he drops the other goalie and he busted his nose. <laughs> I was 13 years old. And my father had to hold on to me so that I didn't fall over the railing from the second deck into the front deck. I just kept saying, he broke his nose. He broke his nose. Neil Little became a god to me that night. They didn't put LeBay back in the game. They put who a guy who I believe may have been like the equipment manager slash emergency goalie into the game to finish it out. But at the end of the game, there were six players on the ice for each team. And like four on the bench. And you just look down at it. I believe the Phantoms won the game seven to two. But you look down and there's like, like I said, four guys on each bench. There are more guys on the ice than on the benches. And it's like, that's kind of surreal, right? The other two come from my college days. One, Syracuse, a big rival of Georgetown's. I wouldn't necessarily say at that time that Georgetown was a rival of Syracuse. But it was either my sophomore or junior year. I can't remember which one it was. But we were beating Syracuse, something like 53-52, you know, one of those kind of old school Big East rock fights. Jerry McNamara is a name that you'll remember if you're a college basketball fan of a certain age. Played for Syracuse, and they got the ball the last play of the game. I don't think I have to tell you what happened. Jerry McNamara hits a buzzer beater to win the game for Syracuse. The reason that sticks out to me so much is because all of the fans in the student section where I was cheering away, like, ah, oh, no, you're not. And you just see, as soon as he shoots the ball, I knew that I was like, oh, that's going in. And people would be like, oh, no, no, you didn't. Oh, come on. You didn't. Well, the school paper comes out the following Monday. There's a photo from the far baseline where you can see McNamara going up for the shot, or he's just taken the shot. And you can see the students going crazy. And you can see me with the look on my face knowing <laughs> the ball's about to go in the net. I really wish I had saved that paper. But there I am on the front page of the school paper already just like, I can't believe we've lost this game. But the weirdest ending wasn't actually the end of the game. It was the end of regulation. Georgetown's playing Seton Hall. It's a tie ball game. Seton Hall gets the ball with 12 seconds left. Comes down. 
scores a basket. Georgetown manages to get a layup to tie the game and send it to overtime. The Hoyas go on to lose the game. Get back to the dorm that night. It's all over SportsCenter for that sequence where they scored the basket to go ahead and Georgetown tied the game. Seton Hall had six players on the floor. Seton Hall didn't notice it. Georgetown didn't notice it. The referees didn't notice it. None of the media noticed it. None of the fans noticed it because I think everyone would have been screaming bloody murder. Nobody noticed it until after the fact. Would have been a technical foul. Georgetown would have gotten free throws, had the lead. Depending when it got noticed, they may have even had the ball. If you think about it, it's absolutely crazy that that could happen. That people can't count to five or don't care to count to five. But this had happened a few weeks after Georgetown's head coach, Craig Esherick, went on a rant about the abuse that our best player, Mike Sweetney, would take in the post, where he specifically waited until we won a game. And he goes on this rant, including the famous phrase, I will pay the way to Washington, D.C. for any referee to stand in the post and take the beating that Michael takes. And he, and he ended it with, having said that, I'm glad we won the game or something like that. It was an overtime win over West Virginia. I remember that. A few weeks later, this six on five thing happens. And when you ask me, what's the craziest finish you've ever seen to a game? I'm like, I can't really think of anything crazy. And then for some reason I said, what about the time Seton Hall had six guys on the floor? And I got mad all over again. It's been literally 18 years, half a lifetime. And I got mad about it all over again. So those are my three goofiest, you know, none of them are particularly crazy, all weird in their own way. Except maybe the Jerry McNamara thing. That's not weird. He just he did that all the time. But John, I'm sure you've seen something far crazier than anything I just said. And hopefully it doesn't involve batteries making their way to the field. Well, I don't know about field. I'll, I'll go specifically turf for this. Joe, what were you doing on Monday, July 16th, 2001? So that would have been, I have no idea, John. (laughs) I'll tell you what I was doing. I was suffering. Veteran Stadium, Yankees, Phillies. The Yankees are experiencing one of the heights of their many power eras. (laughs) And the Phillies are finally starting to get it together again. So, you know, Larry Bell was the manager at the time. You know, they were starting to become like a little bit more relevant and... You know, Yankees-Phillies was a big series. And this was the first couple of years of interleague play. So it was very much a novelty that the Yankees or Red Sox would be in Philly. And so I was, you know, I was one of 46,000 people there. And the game is pretty good. Goes into extra innings. 13th inning of the game. Bases loaded. Ed Vosberg is pitching. Now, you probably don't remember the Ed Vosberg era fondly. I was just going to say I wasn't positive which team he was pitching for. That would be the Phillies. That'd be your Phillies. <laughs> I can tell from your tone that's probably what you meant. <laughs> so this, this is the top of the 13th inning. Bases are loaded. Now, you said you were one of 46,000 people in the stadium. At this point, you were probably one of 46 people in the stadium, right? Potentially. I mean, this was a four-hour, 19-minute game, so, you know. And I'm sure that your parents were just absolutely thrilled to still be there. I believe I went with my dad, and he might have been thrilled to be there. He's not one who likes to leave a game early. I can't say he was thrilled he was there in the moment that this occurred. So, (laughs) 
bases loaded, Tino Martinez at the plate, no balls, two strikes. What happens? A balk. (laughs) The winning run was balked in after 13 innings, and then he just fell apart after that. They lost six to three, couldn't recover. It was just one of those things where, you know, sometimes dunks are worth more than two points. And, you know, just everything fell apart after that. I never, I will never remember being so depressed. It's like, ugh. And the umpire was Bruce Fromming, by the way. I thought for the longest time that it was Bob Davidson until I looked this game up on Baseball Reference (laughs) because he, you know, was a terrible umpire who would call box from time to time. I mean, he was known as balking Bob Davidson. Exactly. So there's a good chance I was at another game that he called a decisive balk for. But, you know, Bruce Fremming, who was another longtime umpire, he he called that. And I, honestly, I, it's 20 years later. The 20th anniversary of that game will be this year. I will probably be <laughs> the only one thinking of it. I was going to say, do you think the Phillies are going to bring everyone back for a 20-year reunion of the Ed Vosberg balk game? Which, by the way, is a term that has probably just been said for the first time in recorded history. John, this is a uh, kind of a masochistic thing that uh, I know Phillies fans do. Read us the starting lineup for that game, for the Phillies. Leading off, actually, one of my all-time favorite players, Doug Glanville in center field, followed okay. by Jimmy Rollins, another one of my all-time favorite players. Next up, Pat Burrell, followed by Scott Rowland. There's a whole podcast devoted to him. Just you know, <laughs> scroll back a little bit more it's in your pretty feed. good lineup so far. Yeah, pretty good. It it, it gets worse. Uh, Travis Lee. All right, there you go. It's starting to get worse. Brian Hunter. Pinch hit for by Bobby Bray later on in the game, followed by Gary Bennett. I do not remember the Gary Bennett arrow well. He was batting <laughs> 217 at the time. And then after that, Marlon Anderson on the bump, Randy Wolf. So the Wolf Pack, do you think they stuck it out for the whole time? Probably, but I can't say they had their, their masks on. I believe they usually took them off after he was done. So it was you, your dad, and the Wolf Pack watching the Phillies balk in the losing run in a 13-inning game. Yeah, that would stick with me for a while, too, I got to admit. It's this feeling that you can't quite shake. And I was actually looking up yesterday on YouTube just to see if I could find that game to see if he really did balk, because in my mind, no balk. You know, 700 level, you know, from the third base side looking down, no balk, he didn't flinch at all. But I was thinking, you know, I could have been wrong. You know, I could have missed something. And I was trying to find it on on YouTube. YouTube channel devoted to classic Phillies baseball, which, you know, it's a small era. (laughs) They had the game from... July 17th, not July 16th up there. <laughs> so I was so close, but yet so far, uh, you know, and then that game wound up, I believe, cutting out because the VHS tape that it was originally recorded off of just died out. So, <laughs> you know, again, so close, but yet so far, not unlike the Phillies on that night. But John, it's moments like that that made 2008 and whenever the next World Series title is all that much sweeter. Sure. Well, I guess maybe you don't have the same unbounded optimism that I do about the future of the franchise. I was promised that they would win again and again and again, and I'm still (laughs) waiting for the first again. Well, before you go off on another rant about the future of one of the franchises in town, let's call it a night. 
You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, and more. We're on social media, at Boobirds Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And, of course, our website, BooBirdsPodcast.com. John, last week you announced the winner of the Chase Utley Bobblehead Contest. Did you get a response yet? We've yet to hear from Marin J yet. You know, again, five-star rating on February 5th. We thank you for that. But the Chase Utley Bobblehead are still yours. Just reach out to us at email, BooBirdsPodcast at gmail.com, or hit us up through direct message on one of our fine social media feeds. Marin J, you got to claim your prize. We'll give you another week or two. Happy H10, I believe, was the runner-up. That's correct. All right. Happy. Stay in the wings. The prize might be yours soon enough. John, good luck with your shot tomorrow, and I'll talk to you next week. See you next week.